there's a scene in World War Z. I think Brad Pitt's in this helicopter and it's, it's circling around. I think they're in Israel. Um, and there's a horde of zombies <laughs> trying to figure out how to get into it, right? And they build this tower and it's just ridiculous. And that's how I see it. It's like everybody in the VFX industry, at least the people that are in charge, are like, it doesn't matter. We're gonna, we're gonna get slaughtered. We're, we're gonna race towards this horrible ending and it doesn't matter. Welcome back, futurists, to another episode of the Future Podcast. As you can tell from the cold open, we're going to be in for a bumpy ride because I'm going to dive deep with Mr. Ryan Summers and talk about what's ailing the visual effects industry. You're also going to be hearing from Sam Burns. He's going to be stepping into the spotlight a little bit. He's the guy who's been editing the podcast, so I've encouraged him to kind of weave his own narrative and his own voice into the podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed this edition. So without further ado, let's get into it. For those of us that don't know who you are, can you introduce yourself, Ryan? Sure, yeah, my name is Ryan Summers. I'm a creative director at a company in uh, Chicago called Digital Kitchen, but in previous lives, I've been a character animator, I've been a blogger, I've been an editor. Um, I actually was a chemist before I got all started with this. Um, and uh, I just, I love animation. I love film um, and I love talking about it. I always look forward to having people like you on who have been in the industry for a while, who have a point of view and are well-read and, and articulate. So this is going to be a super exciting conversation for me to have. And I want to just jump right in and talk about the VFX industry. You have a lot of strong opinions about it and perhaps how it, it is chewing up people and spitting people out and they have health problems. Some people have depression, some people have financial problems. So let's just start there. Can you get us caught up to speed as to your point of view on this? Sure. Yeah. Um, I kind of worked everywhere before I moved to LA, but I had the intention of moving to Los Angeles with my, um, with my partner at the time to both work in visual effects. Um, she was working in Chicago doing kind of like roto and light comping. And I'd been an animator. I'd worked in video games, worked everywhere, but we both wanted to get in. She got in about six months before I did, was out there. Um, and then uh, we're actually in the middle of getting married. And then I moved out there. Um, and we both worked in visual effects. She worked at a lot of smaller houses doing um, kind of smaller budget visual effects films. And I did a little bit of TV visual effects while I was also kind of bouncing around with motion graphics. Um, and when I was there, it was super exciting. First six months to a year, you're working like crazy, but you don't care because you're you're working on movies, you're working on the stuff that you've always wanted to get to. Um, but I started getting a little worried because I started seeing things that scared me. Um, the visual effects industry is super tough, even 10 years ago and especially now. Let me put that in perspective. In 2017, the visual effects industry was worth $254 billion. In 2020, it's projected to reach $270 billion. The work is getting crazier. The demands are higher. Um, photorealism is kind of the entry level minimum. Um, but the amounts of kind of coordination between multiple studios just to get one movie done is insane. Um, when you watch a film and you stick through the credits and you see that giant block of names um, across probably five or six studios, that's not everyone that worked on a film even though it's almost in you know the thousands of, of names. Um, and if you pay attention, you start seeing names from all over the world because every studio now has an office in Vancouver, may have an office in London or somewhere in Europe, probably somewhere in Southeast Asia, whether it's in India or maybe in Korea or in Japan. There, there's studios everywhere. There's studios in Australia, obviously Weta, New Zealand. They're all working together. They're coordinating. Um, and it's incredibly difficult. The amount of Shots on shows are getting more more and more insane. You're getting into like 1,500, 2,000 shots per film. But that's really a big misnomer. If you read Cinefax or you look at um, FX Guide and they talk about how many shots, you also have to start thinking about how many elements per shot. And you really have to start thinking about how many studios are in a shot. A studio, one studio might do the matte painting. Another studio might be doing the ground. Um, one might be doing particle effects. Another one might be doing crowds or two different studios doing crowds. Um, and then probably two or three different shops are doing the hero characters themselves. Um, and all that stuff has to work together seamlessly to, to kind of fit like as if it was done by the hand of one artist or it was honestly filmed on the day as, as if it was real. Um, mm -hmm. That effort's gotten more and more insane. But at the same time, the constraints um, on the individual people have gotten tougher. 
and then the kind of compensation or the the even thinking of people as as kind of individuals or humans not even as artists but just as humans um has gotten less and less um you probably know there's no um union for visual effects and there's nobody really looking out for the different studios themselves except for the the studios and when i say studios i mean the vfx shops not the the film studios um so there's crazy hours there's no representation there's no healthcare um, there's no real way to go to arbitrate your situation. There's no um, seat at the table within the industry. There's only two parts of the film industry that don't have any kind of unions. Um, it's visual effects and then the um, film composers themselves. But those guys are fairly well compensated, and there's very few of them, so they're doing all mm-hmm. right. But you know, the probably the largest part of the entire film industry has no no safety net, um, nothing to back them up, and no no voice kind of to unify them. Um, so when I was there, it went from being something that was awesome. It was like a fairy tale to becoming a horror, um, seeing people get sick, seeing people get really frustrated, seeing people go through mental anguish, seeing families um, being broke up. You know, a good portion of why I actually probably ended up getting divorced was because of the the time constraints and the, the intensity of something that the, the visual effects industry kind of created. And I was seeing wow. that happen, seeing that happen everywhere. Um, it wasn't just me. I mean, I was seeing people dealing with drug problems, with alcohol problems, people um, getting into car accidents because not because they were drunk driving, but because they were too tired to make it back home. Um, it just, just bad habits everywhere. And it looked completely unsustainable. And then in the middle of all of that, um, at least in Los Angeles, the work started getting sent out to the four corners of the world because of tax incentives. So not only were the hours crazy, but then the demands of, oh, you know, we need you to actually go and fly to New Zealand and work for a year. Or if you still want to work for us, we're moving everything from LA to Albuquerque. And then three years later, it goes from Albuquerque to Vancouver and wherever else. It turned into kind of a gypsy lifestyle. Um, and I myself just completely got out. I, I, As much as I love being associated with the films or the TV shows, the work wasn't as exciting and the constraints were too much. And I realized how much I love motion graphics, but um, there's a lot of people still in it, still kind of um, holding their breath, putting their knuckles down, and just hoping that it gets better the next time they come up for air. And it's, um, mm. I don't think it's getting better at all, to be honest. What what year is it that you got out of this? Um, I went about, I went to LA, I think about eight years ago. And my first two and a half to three years was all visual effects. Um, so it's 2018 now, probably 2012, 2013. Um, I don't know the, the year, but it was the year that Life of Pi happened. The whole kind of oh, fiasco okay. Ooh, um, yes. with the Oscars. In 2013, the Life of Pi received the award for best visual effects. VFX supervisor, Bill Westenhofer, was giving his speech and went on just a little bit too long. He wanted to end it by shedding light on the 400 people outside those doors protesting in an effort to bring awareness for unionization. You see, Rhythm and Hughes, a company that played a huge part in the VFX of the life of Pi, went bankrupt. 250 people were fired that month. I was really heavily involved and really kind of spending as much of my free time at least trying to learn about what what unions were and what they meant, especially in the film industry. I kind of had the the broken model in my head of like, you know, car unions or steelworkers unions from living in the Midwest and growing up in the 80s. But um, I did a lot of education just for myself to figure out what it really meant to be unionized as a, as a group of, of artists working together and what it really meant for the film industry. And probably, mm-hmm. probably worked with 10 or 12 different people um, to try to find anybody that could help us kind of just... Really, my big push was trying to find a way for everybody to be able to get um, healthcare. In, in the film industry, there's the, the Motion Picture Health Fund that pretty much anybody um, below the line working in Hollywood gets access to, and it's it's really terrific healthcare. Um, there's a, a splinter of it, I believe, for the animators um, guild, animation guild gets access to it. But one of the largest bodies of people, um, largest bodies of craftsmen and artists, they they didn't have access to it, and we tried and tried and tried, and it's just there there was a lot of different things keeping it from really ever happening. Mm-hmm. Now you've given us a lot to think about in a short burst like this. So I'm trying to unpack all this information in case there are newly initiated people to what the heck we're talking about. So this is a primer and, and that's like getting us caught up to speed into 2018. So a couple of things I just wanted to know, what is below the line? Um, so all the people that you don't know their name, essentially, you know, when okay. we, do, we do title sequences, um, you know, for films. Um, there's probably 25 to 30, maybe 40 names that get put in a title sequence at the end of a film for a main on end. Mm-hmm. It's essentially the thousands of other people that don't get their name in one of those sequences. So like if you've watched, mm-hmm. you know, the famous kind of Danny Young, uh, Iron Man title sequence from the first one, mm-hmm. there's probably 30 or 40, everybody that's not in that list. So all the people that are 
working in visual effects, the best boys, the gaffers, the grips, the people who drive people back and forth, um, craft services, uh, all those people, all those craftsmen, all the artists that that work on a film that don't get that title. It's it's probably 90, 95% of the, the crew of a film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so there's a couple of things to think about here. First, when you're describing that the visual effects industry has has blown up in terms of having offices set up all over the globe, uh, to the uninitiated, that sounds like, wow, that's that's an incredible opportunity. I don't have to be in Los Angeles. I can be in India or I can be in China or Korea or Japan or Canada or wherever. Isn't isn't that an opportunity to work where one wasn't one didn't exist before? You would think it would be, but um, mm-hmm. the funny thing is, if you go to Vancouver, um, the vast majority of the people, especially in the, the senior management or senior artist level, are all people that used to work in LA, and they've all moved over. I mean, all of these things, as kind of a general concept, you know, tax incentives have a purpose that I think is really um, heroic and really, really beneficial in the in the concept, in the abstract. You know, like say you want to start a film industry and you want it to happen in Albuquerque or in Shreveport. Um, the whole idea is that you give a, a, a kind of a, a turbo boost, kind of a, a jump start to the industry, and you you basically through tax incentives or through through cash at hand, most of the time tax incentives, um, you kind of allow the industry to grow at a rapid pace, right? You basically add oxygen to the fire. Um, but the idea is that, at least with other industries, is that it's not something that is forever. It, it's something that is kind of added to credit, create a self-sustaining industry, and you hopefully get a lot of local people who benefit from outside help in terms of education. And then you build um, kind of the ability to add um, supply in terms of work to a demand that will organically grow. What the problem is that happens is the local industries get built on the back of kind of already experienced labor. And then they don't really invest in the local communities, invest in the local artists to kind of slowly grow. They look for rapid growth. And then they try to just keep the tax incentives going for as long as possible, if not increase them. Um, in places like Albuquerque, it was a complete failure. I don't know what the numbers were, but I imagine something like 20% tax incentives coming in and you get that knocked off of what your your budget for your film is. And then after five or six years, theoretically, the, the industry should be so strong and so well represented and so well educated and so well trained that they should be able to be self-sustainable. So if you pull that 20%, um, it should be a self-sustaining industry that's healthy, that that's that's fast, that's mobilized. But what ends up happening is that any threat of that um, tax incentive going away, then the studios just pull out and they go for the next geographic area that's looking to boost technology or boost um, entertainment um, for their local economy. Uh, Most of the time that money does not make it back into the local industry. So it's Mm. kind of a great idea at the beginning, but it kind of gets perverted and changed um, as it kind of actually gets executed on. Okay, so for clarification here, when you're talking about getting a tax incentive, there's the movie studio that contracts out a VFX shop. Who's getting that incentive? So if, if a project is supposed to cost, let's just say for round numbers, $100,000 uh, for a shot that would be done in Los Angeles, what is being paid in Albuquerque, New Mexico if, it, if there's a 20% tax incentive? How does that work? They're done in different ways. And I'm not the complete kind of financial expert, but they're either done as rebates or incentives typically. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and the, the savings gets passed on to the studio, to the film studio itself, to the budget of the film. And normally what will happen is, um, I believe New York is like this and maybe it was three or four years ago and maybe it's changed since then. But initially what ends up happening is you'll get a incentive or a, a rebate based on if you shoot all of your live action there. So if the live action crew is there, that goes directly to the production, you know, to the studio that's, that's financing the film. And then there'll be an add-on credit or an add-on rebate if you continue to do post-production in the same town or in the same geographic area. Um, I don't know what the numbers are, but I think it's an extra 10 or 15% if you're in New York. I know Atlanta. I was just down there to do a shoot and it was offered that if I had any feature script idea that if I came in and it was more than $4 million, um, the guys that I was just shooting a behind the scenes for a project I had done told me that he could get me 28% off my budget immediately. You know, if I had a small film um, that could kind of fit in between all these other giant blockbuster films that are going on, the state itself would give um, my, if I started a production company, um, would give me the money back. But um, typically it's it's going directly to the film studio that would be paying the visual effects shop. Um, it's not an okay. incentive or a rebate that like Weta or Digital Domain or Rhythm and Hughes would take advantage of. I see. So if you're Disney or Warner Brothers or one of the big studios or 20th Century Fox, then you would get that money. 
Correct. And then therefore you would be motivated to produce your project there, either right. via live action or post-production. Right. And that's why you start seeing all the visual effects studios setting up satellite shops um, because they need to be in the geographic location for the production studio, for the for the film studio it. to take advantage of it. So we're, we're kind of in that hunter-gatherer mindset. Basically, we go where the food supply is, Correct. right? So we're in Los Angeles. Uh, the herd moves north, we move north. And so it's transplanting or dislocating a lot of families or people just because they have to follow the work supply. Mm -hmm. Now, to, okay, go ahead. Oh, no, no. I, I was, it, and it's not just located, um, it's not just centered just in visual effects. It's, if you look at Vancouver, this has happened before with film and television production. Um, back when the X-Files, if you're old enough to remember the original X-Files, they, they shot a lot of stuff in Vancouver when it was a kind of a boom period because there was a tax incentive. And then they moved to LA and it kind of at the same time, the tax incentives for the film and TV industry in Vancouver kind of were diminished and almost everything kind of stopped. Um, I think 10 to 15 years later, the same thing happened for the video game industry. I had a lot of good friends that moved from the Midwest that went up to Vancouver. And for three or four years, it was the wild west. Everybody was building studios. Lots of good games were made out there. And then they decided to pull the incentive down again. Um, and now, you know, you're really kind of just living at the the tides of the political kind of um, political current. But right now, Vancouver has just gone gangbusters for for visual effects and for um, technology. And everybody moved up there. But there's always every two years or how, whatever the timing is for the the political kind of voting mechanisms. Um, there's always kind of in the air like, oh, are they going to drop the incentive? Are we going to have to move to Toronto? Are we going to move to Ottawa? Is there going to be a better uh, two percent more incentive deal somewhere else in Canada? Um, so it really is kind of it, it's never tied to your performance as a, an individual or performance as a company. And to be honest, not even the performance of the industry at large in the geographic area. Right. Well, I guess in a free market system like this, you can't blame local communities and cities and governments to say like, look, we want to help stimulate the economy. We don't have a foothold in the industry and there's really no reason why somebody would leave an established market like Los Angeles for VFX and film work to come somewhere else and set up shop and learn about the new rules and the, the customs and the culture and all that kind of stuff. So they essentially buy the work, right? So they give yep. the studios that 15, 10, 20% tax credit, whatever it is to incentivize them. So they're getting more money to produce their films than they, than they could afford. Right. So then they go there and theoretically the concept is great. In some instances it's worked and in a lot of instances it doesn't because the local economy doesn't do well. Taxpayers are footing the bill and there's an unintended consequence, which is it's hurting mm -hmm. the individuals and the companies that are in that industry, right? Yeah. And the long term it is. And I, I, like, I would just want to make it clear that I'm not, I'm not mm -hmm. anti- you know, tax incentives or, or a country or an area wanting more work to be done. I mean, I, I can tell you just very personally, I was um, the VFX supervisor in a really small independent film that a couple friends of mine put together um, and they were actually able to make their film. And, and we're talking something that that's below million dollar budget, right? Small film, crew of 12, year and a half production with a very small, small amount of people from the beginning to the end. But um, our team really wanted to shoot in Iceland because it was really important to the story and the production value that we would get just by shooting in those areas, the beautiful areas that a lot of films have not shot in, um, we were able to go in and talk to, um, I believe it was the, the film board in Iceland, or it may have even been the tourism board, um, and negotiate a, a fairly significant incentive um, because they wanted to try to draw more people for um, tourism. They wanted people to see the environment, to see the, the, the places that you could go. And it was integrated directly into our story. There's a really strong reason for Van or for um, Iceland to be interested in us and for us to take advantage of Iceland's credits because it, they were directly integrated. Um, I think those are great uses for incentives. Um, and I think that they, they actually probably um, do make their money back over the long term for the local areas, for the, the businesses, for the tourism boards, for countries. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the same thing when you see hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in Vancouver being spent. You're not filming films in Vancouver to look like Vancouver. You're you're taking advantage of um, a tax incentive to, to bring people from all around the world, not to build up the local economy and the local skill set. Um, so it, it's not an all for one and one for all. Like I, I do think there's times where it's good, but um, I think in the larger term for VFX, it, it hasn't been healthy. Mm -hmm. I want to just take a moment here to say this, that if you're listening to this and this is becoming really interesting, you're engaged in this conversation and you want to know more if you're not already working in the VFX industry, I highly recommend you take a look at this film. It's called Hollywood's Greatest Trick. 
And that's a really good primer. It interviews a lot of people and it'll give you a broad view of what we're talking about. And then you can dive back into this episode. But for the rest of you guys that know what we're talking about, let's get into some juicier bits because that movie brought up a lot of points and it, it made me scratch my head, right? Because I'm not in the VFX industry per se, but I'm in the creative space doing motion design, doing production. So I'm familiar with these things. There's a lot of overlap and I want to talk mm-hmm. about some of the things and perhaps really kind of understand where you weigh in and all this stuff. So a couple mm-hmm. things pop out to me. Uh, there are many points made in the film about how the top 10 highest grossing films are all VFX laden. Uh, that was from 2016. That uh, the industry generates, including games and, and movies, over $700 billion in revenue. So I think I start to understand like what the setup is here. It's not because this is a poor industry. And it's, it's also set up as it's very essential to the success of these films that VFX play a part in this. And if not, in, in some instances, some of the people on camera say that there is no film without the VFX industry. So it's essential. It's lucrative. There's a lot of money moving around. So why is there this disparity that exists? So I think they're talking about the film Gravity with Sandra Bullock, who earned $62 million in her role as the lead. And then they were saying that Framestore, uh, one of the, the principal VFX companies, wasn't even profitable on that job. So why is that? Um, I think a big problem, and I think this is where the the parallels really come across to, to motion graphics and maybe the the words of caution or the lessons to learn come in as well, is that I, I don't think visual effects companies are really run like companies. I think they're run as collections of artists who are just excited to be involved and excited to be part of something that they've loved. Um, when visual effects studios started, and I'm talking about before, I'm talking about the optical age, the the industrial lights and magic, um, the all the companies that were creating miniatures and doing optical composites, That that really was a time where it was a band of artists, like true artists, craftspeople, people who had hand skills, um, people who probably spent 10 to 15 years just to even be able to to make something um, that was worthy of being on on camera and maybe had to invent techniques themselves. Um, they weren't relying necessarily just on software and hardware that was kind of um, growing alongside them. Um, they were run like mom and pop shops and they were an integral part, but visual effects were not necessarily the norm. So they were kind of just off to the side doing the things for the 10 to 15% of the shots that required them, but they were never the focus. But once Star Wars happens, once more and more um, blockbusters, summer blockbusters start happening where the visual effects are the character, the visual effects are the setting, the visual effects are the plot lines. Um, and as computers start coming into play, um, the companies did not grow their financial savvy and their their business savvy at the same rate that I think they grew up their technological savvy. I, I always like to say that one of the biggest problems with the, the industry was when industrial light and magic changed from magic being the number one line and industry being the number one line. Um, I feel like there's probably a time place where you can say that um, we stopped focusing on the artists and we started focusing on the computers and the technological horsepower. Um, and then over time, that just became commoditized. Um, I don't think the the visual effects industry has ever recovered since then. That was the beginning of the end. Um, mm-hmm. I also think the visual effects, the people running the visual effects shops, um, loved loved making movies, but I don't think they loved the movie making industry, and they never stood up. Um, they never stood up for themselves to be taken seriously. Um, they never stood against um, maybe directors who were kind of, I would say, abusing their power. Um, and they never pushed back against the the six customers that they had. I think that's one thing that's gracefully or great. I'm very grateful that our motion graphics industry is different. The visual effects industry literally only has six customers, and and actually in a few weeks or a few months, it'll be down to five with Fox and Disney kind of um, consolidating. Um, there's a lot of leverage or a lot of perceived leverage when. If there's only five people you can go to and you stand up and say, I'm not going to continue working for you at this rate or at this pace, you're down to four. And the dirty little secret about the film industry, if you're not in it, is that everybody that's at one studio within the next seven to eight years will probably leave, get fired or move on, and they'll all work at the next studio. So if you really anger someone at, let's say, Disney, there's a good chance that you actually are angering in five to seven years um, someone from Paramount and someone from Fox. So... The people running these shops probably feel fairly leveraged down. Like they don't, they can never say no. Um, And that's been historically something that's built us to the situation where we're in now. 
If you're listening on iTunes, please write us a review. We'll be forever grateful. Hey all, John Roth of The Future here. Let me ask you something. What do you think of when you think of the perfect proposal? Me? I think about walking along a beach barefoot, the water gracefully touching my feet. The sun is setting as I turn to my lady, Academy Award-winning actress Jennifer Lawrence, and I say, sweet pea to my pod, how about you and I face this thing together we call life? Well, that's not what Chris Doe and Ben Burns think the perfect proposal is. To them, the perfect proposal is everything you need to craft effective proposals that win jobs and close leads. This three-part downloadable product, written by Ben the Burns himself, will help you approach proposals in a new way. The Perfect Proposal Kit is an end-to-end solution that will help you design proposals that win business. It's that simple. And frankly, if your close rate is over 60%, meaning you close at least 60% of the proposals you send, you probably don't need this resource. But if you fail to close that often, this could be the smartest $59 you will ever spend. You heard me right, it's only $59. So if you're interested in proposing perfectly, head on over to thefuture.com, that's the F-U-T-U-R.com, and check out The Perfect Proposal. Jennifer Lawrence not included. Well, so here's here's my thought, just kind of sitting, and there are a lot of parallels with with motion graphics and graphic design even, and the VFX industry, obviously some glaring differences, but when you have a situation where you're running a multi-million dollar enterprise and you're bad at business, can you take some accountability for that? I mean, why not just hire business people to run your company and where's the conflict in that? So if we're past that point, and, and it sounds like we are, if we could roll the tape back, why, why let the artists run the shops? And if we're not good at running a business and we're in business, then we have ourselves to hold accountable, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I I will. I'm I'm pretty steadfast on. I don't blame the film studios. I don't blame mm-hmm. the Disney's and the Warner's and the Foxes. Their job is to get as much work as possible for as little money as possible. Right. And historically, they've always done that. They've done that with actors when they assign them contracts, and you were a contracted artist in the 30s, 40s, and I think 50s. If you were contracted to Warner Brothers, you were a Warner Brothers actor. Same thing with directors. Um, but those people banded together, stopped, created unions, did what they had to do, whether it was fighting behind closed doors or refusing to work or walking out. Um, And I think if you look at it historically, every part of the industry has had that moment where they had to say, look, no more. We're going to to change things. It's going to be painful. Some of us will be lost. But going forward, we'll make the sacrifice to protect ourselves and future generations. And every time someone's pushed because they're an integral part of the filmmaking process, they've gotten what they needed to get. Um, there's a really great book by a guy named Tom Cito called Drawing the Line that tells the the history of all of the kind of animation workforce, um, whether it's labor strikes or disagreements or negotiations. Um, and I tell people all the time, like, it wouldn't be fun and it would be really, really difficult, but there is a playbook out there for how to handle this. And it's not the exact same time period. And the workforce is globally distributed. It's not just all sitting in LA, um, but there would be ways to do it. But I, I, I don't blame the studios. I, I think that they're doing exactly what they're set up to do. They're an organism just like any other creative or, or um, artistic community for profit. Um, and I, I don't entirely blame the artists. Um, there's a section of the artists that I think hold responsibility, but I really, I really personally feel like I hold the studio, the shops, the visual effects shops um, responsible is that mm. they were able to take the money and keep the money coming in, but they they didn't take the stand when they probably should have. Um, everybody probably has a little bit of blame, but I really do think that there's probably a lot of shop owners that were like, look, I was an artist. I started a company. I don't know how to run a company. I just want to make movies. Um, and that's fine when you're 10, 20, 30, 50 people. But when you grow to be a thousand, you have four productions a year that if any one of those go bad, your company shuts down. Um, that's your responsibility to either get a lot better at business or bring in people, like you said, to help run the business. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about this and I am, say the same six buyers that you're talking about soon to be five in terms of people who finance and produce films to which a lot of people are dependent upon. And I look at editors, cinematographers, directors, sound and music people and actors, they all have a guild. Many of them get points on the film. So they have a financial incentive. Uh, when the film does really well, they also make a lot more money than what they're agreed to, uh, what they're paid for, right? And so 
I, I'm with you on this, that the VFX shops who basically, if you work for one of them, you sign on to the way that they run their company. So if they work long hours, you work long hours. If they work weekends, you work weekends. If they sign up for a bad deal, as the expression goes, the stuff rolls downhill. And so right. now we have a large group because there are many sellers of VFX work, few buyers of it. Mm -hmm. They all seem to be working against their own best interests. Now, I, I don't have all the data in front of me, but it felt like a lot of times, like say with Digital Domain or Rhythm and Hughes, they ran their company so poorly that they financed their payroll by future projects. And when future projects were delayed or shut down, they were totally screwed. Right. So they're always betting on the next job. It's like robbing from Peter to pay Paul, and they're mm -hmm. always behind on their bills, so to speak. And, yeah. and that seems like a tragedy in terms of just basic business. We're not talking about having some fancy Harvard business degree. It's just talking about run, learning how to bid your projects and to run it appropriately. So we we sign up for these things. So editors didn't sign up for it. Actors didn't. Composers didn't. And they have the same six buyers. So I, I'm right there with you. So if we now can identify the problem, and, and you're right, studios want to produce and get as much content as possible for as little as possible to make as much profit as possible. Essentially, all companies in that supply chain should want the same. You know, if Hans Zimmer makes a score, if he charges half a million dollars to do that, it didn't cost him half a million dollars to make that score. And it, and it's his, his right and pursuit to charge as much as he can on back end and front end fees and try, try to get it done as for as little as possible. And each person should do that as the freelancers that work for him should want to charge as much as they can. So there, there becomes a problem that the choke point here, it seems like, is that the VFX studios are underselling the work because they're highly competitive. And I think, as it's really clearly articulated in the film, is that they kind of volunteer for this because they love mm -hmm. the entertainment property so much. Like I grew up reading comic books, so the ability to work on a Marvel project might supersede my own logic and say this is not going to be a good experience for us financially, spiritually, mentally, whatever. How do we combat that? It's a tough question, man. And I think I, I think there's so many different factors for what could have happened. I, I, personally, I know I've talked with you about this and I, I probably, mm -hmm. people listen to me who have heard me before probably get sick of hearing it, but I'm a big proponent of artists um, trying to find a way to transition from making product to becoming the product. Mm -hmm. And I think... Um, if visual effects companies would have learned that and realized what was coming 10 years earlier, um, and if things like VR and AR and middleware gaming engines came, became accessible a little bit sooner, I think it would have been a much easier transition. Um, I've always been shocked um, that visual effects studios that create, again, the world, the plot line, the characters, the, the spectacle for a lot of these films, I always was amazed that they didn't switch or make a transition or alongside all of that also try to create their own content. Um, I remember seeing uh, ILM had a really great short back in the day called Work in Progress. That was a completely original short. Um, lots of studios tried little bits and pieces. Even a company like Blur who does amazing video game um, cinematics and they do visual effects for films as well. They were always making their own content. Um, and I know it's, it's, it's an associated skill set. You know, it, they don't necessarily have the story departments that, that, you know, animated films or film studios have, but I was always amazed as I was growing up and as I was trying to get into the industry that they maintained the work for hire model for as long as they did because they were just beholden. But at the same time, they had the ability to kind of become their own products, you know, like anytime you bought a, a, a DVD or a Blu-ray, you always wanted to see what, what did ILM do to make Incredible Hulk or how did they make Star Wars? Um, they had Mindshare. They had things that they could use to leverage to kind of balance that that kind of um, the capital coming in. Um, so I've always wondered why, why that hasn't happened. And I think we're starting to see the beginnings of that. Yeah, I, I know quite a few people that are leaving VFX studios and animation studios to start small production houses or to start think tanks or to start working alongside tech companies to start telling narratives. And I think it's slowly starting to happen. I think you're slowly starting to see the brain drain happen from these shops, from, from the visual effects and animation studios. Um, I wish that, that, that message or that calling would have happened a decade sooner. Mm -hmm. Do you know of any example of a VFX company or an animation studio that wound up essentially creating their own content and bypassing this entire model of one of the six buyers? 
Um, I mean, I know digital domain was trying that, um, but that also kind of ropes in a little bit of what we talked about before is that they did bring in financial people, not money people that weren't necessarily built into the entertainment industry. I think they just happened to pick the wrong people. Um, they were building a, an animation uh, studio in Florida. They were aligned to, I forgot which school, they were aligned to a school. They were trying to create a pipeline straight from mm -hmm. graduate to animation studio. They actually had some really interesting Was it Ringling's? I believe so. I don't know if it was yeah. Ringling or Full Sail. Oh, Full Sail. I think it was Full Sail. Mm -hmm. Might have been Full Sail, but they, they had yeah. a whole whole process. I had multiple friends who were leaving jobs in New York and LA. I had a friend who literally was driving down to, to Florida, having sold everything they owned and, and let go of their apartment on the way to go and join Digital Domain's um, animation team. They had probably two or three years at at um, Seagraph and at animation festivals trying to, trying to get people to come in. Um, and on the way down, the the studio was shuttered because of a bunch of really um, bad, nefarious financial deals. Um, and that's a whole other probably um, documentary. Um, but they had really cool projects. They had a project called Tusker um, that was about uh, about CG, um, fa fairly photorealistic elephants. Um, they had a whole slate kind of up and running in terms of development. Um, and that was really exciting. There was a moment where it's like, wow, digital domain is going to transfer from doing work for other people to making their own. Um, I think probably... I would almost say one of the most successful ones was um, MacGuffin, the the studio that was originally, I believe they're in Paris. They originally did visual effects and created an animation unit. Um, and originally it was work for hire, but they were the team that ended up, um, I believe, getting bought by the film studio that made Despicable Me. Um, but for a while, they they really, um, I think it turned into Illumination or Illumination purchased them. But I thought they they made the transition fairly successfully of being completely work for hire, doing visual effects for commercials, live action stuff, um, taking a long time and probably a lot of money and effort to start an animation studio and then turning into um, a fairly profitable company that then also was so profitable that they um, were actually bought out um, and turned into an animation arm for a studio. Um, mm -hmm. So there's definitely been examples of it, um, but I don't think there's been enough. Okay, so um, you're gonna have to correct me because I may be saying something that's not true, but I look at the history of Pixar and how it was just an experimental experimental animation labs offshoot of uh, ILM, I believe, that was mm -hmm. originally owned by George Lucas, then later sold to Steve Jobs. But essentially Pixar made their own films. They hired their own writers and did storyboarding. They did the whole thing and they just needed a content distributor. And ultimately it was purchased by Disney. But when I hear things in that film, uh, the secrets, what is it called? The, the Hollywood's greatest trick, which is if somebody claims that the VFX is responsible for 95% of that film that earned X dollars, then the part that you have to replace, let's say it's if it's 95% of the film, and in some cases it is, why not just hire out that 5%? Because I'm sure those mm -hmm. writers are sitting around thinking like, what's my next project? Because you know, once they finish writing the script, they, they're on to what else, you know, they, what else are they gonna do? So it takes a different mindset now. I, I think we're going to get into this because I'd love to have a really robust, vigorous dialogue with you about this and say like, well, if you if you honestly believe that and you're not just throwing out a fact because it sounds uh, overwhelming, lopsided, why not just use some of your money to hire some writers and storyboard people and to work on it and to develop your own film and then find a distribution partner or to distribute yourself? That doesn't seem to make sense. Like something is not clicking in my brain. And mm -hmm. this mentality, and you and I have talked about this before, so I think I'm going to open it up for you to explode if you want to, which is <laughs> this idea, like I'm a Game of Thrones fan, right? So right. it's like, kill the masters. Why are we so trained to look for other people to tell us what to do, to kind of determine how long we can work, at what rates we should work at, and how much of the pie we should receive? Especially mm -hmm. today, when the distribution channels are kind of wide open, why aren't we doing that? Are, are we just kind of doing this to ourselves and then feeling the, the woe is me complex afterwards? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it goes back to what I said a little bit earlier is that I, I think the mechanisms for it aren't there now. The, the mechanisms to create, to distribute, to have a remotely sourced team that doesn't have to be physically co-located and the, the overhead of trying to um, manage all of that doesn't necessarily have to be as high. 
Um, the distribution models are there. The will from the viewers are there. The desire to have super fans that will be essentially your promotional marketing department. All of that exists now. I think ten years ago, fifteen years ago, it was a little too early. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think you can. I don't think you can blame all of it on that. Um, I I'm in the middle of kind of viewing this now, having moved from Los Angeles to to Chicago. But I, I really strongly see um, something that you talk about, and I think we talked a little bit on our podcast. Um, th- there's this sliding. Sliding scale amongst artists um, globally that there's there's success driven and survival driven personalities, right? Um, and I think that worked strongly in um, or against uh, visual effects shops' favor is that they're just trying to survive. If you talk to anybody who's actually run a studio, and Dr. Scott Ross uh, who was on that um, that movie, he did a lot of the talking about gravity. Um, I, I've talked to him several times, watched him kind of um, see his opinion kind of evolve over time about unionizing and, and how to work. Um, if you ever get the chance to talk to him, ask him what the margins were for digital domain at its highest point. Um, it's very difficult to find anybody from ILM to talk about it now that they're owned by Disney, but the margins, the actual amount of capital in the bank, the the ability to kind of flex for a visual effects studio is shockingly extremely low. I, I would actually imagine that the capital available to some of the, the larger motion graphic studios or people that are starting to do AR and VR is probably quite a bit more because visual effects is just such a manpower driven company. And it's also completely work for hire in the sense that you agree to a certain amount of money that you're going to be paid at the beginning of a movie. And quite often now you don't even have a script. It's kind of shocking. There's not a right. script, but there's actually, there's there's no previs, there's no storyboards or very minimal. Um, you may just know that there's five acts and that there's going to be in the second act, there's going to be a fight with five fully CG characters against an army of CG aliens. And it's going to last 12 to 15 minutes, um, but you have no idea what it is. And you're trying to bid and scope off of that. Um, and then the double-edged sword is very often, it's very difficult to get change orders through as a visual effects company once you've committed. Um, right. That's quite honestly why you see um, so many studios coming in at the end of a job. Um, and a lot of times they're smaller studios that you don't you don't know the names of or you haven't heard them. And honestly, when you watch the credits, they only get an additional VFX credit. The names of all the people who work there aren't on there. That's why I say if you see 1,250 people on the name of a of a large film, but you see five or six more studios there, there's probably another four or 500 people that actually contributed or worked on that movie that aren't getting credit. Um, and honestly, probably aren't getting paid very much to do it because they're just trying to build their reel or they're trying to build their their reputation or their relationship with the studio. Um, I think that that's, that's a big part of it is that there is that we just need to survive. I think you even heard it if you watch that Hollywood's Greatest Trick. Um, someone talking about digital domain mentions like, you know, it was a great year if we broke even. That was a huge success. Like that, that's frightening as a company that may have 750 to 1,000 employees spread out around the world. Like if you could just break even to make sure the lights stay on for another year or through another film like that, there's no, that's no way to, to run a creative endeavor. Right. So this is a very unique situation that in most industries and most fields, this is not happening. And I, I know this, I know exactly what you're talking about, because even in the commercial space, when you bid on a project, you're coming up with a budget simultaneously concurrently with the creative. So how could that even be true? And it's a fallacy to believe that the budget you put together is actually any real representation of the work itself, right? Because the boards haven't been approved. You haven't been awarded the job yet. You're submitting a number and those things change. So this is this becomes the problem. So we, we have to realize, is this the industry we want to work in? Or do we want to say it's going to be between this dollar and that dollar, depending on the finalized approved storyboards, which we're going to charge mm-hmm. you to design. So what I see is, I see hundreds, if not thousands of people working for these companies, agreeing to terms that are not favorable to them at all. They're totally lopsided and yet they continue to agree. Now, something that I noticed in the film, maybe an undercurrent or a tone, and I've I've heard some phrases, but my ears perked up, that there's this thing about kind of this feeling that people are scared of a fight, that it's tough and there's only six buyers, so we should not challenge that. And I can only think back to like uh, people who uh, were part of the civil rights movement. That's a much tougher fight where your lives are literally at stake. Yet people banded together and they, they, they created change. So when it's this idea of all or nothing, for example, if all VFX studios do this, then it will work or nothing will work. That doesn't seem sane to me. If right. uh, a couple of notable studios like Weta 
or I guess not ILM now because ILM is owned by uh, Disney, right? Right. Uh, that was part of the purchase. So if a couple of studios banded together and just said, okay, the two of us will agree not to do this anymore and then mm -hmm. see what happens and then three and then five and eventually, and we have to realize, look, here, here's the truth. You can't make a Tom Cruise film without Tom Cruise. And so they, they don't have to find somebody else or that movie will not get made. So I think, and if this is true, if the VFX were 95% of the work or the end product, just sit out. Yep. Sit I mean, it that's, out. Honestly, that, that's, I mean, that's Fight. what no one wanted to talk about. Nobody wanted to hear. I mean, I, I, I spent two and a half, three years dancing around that and having some people say it out loud and some people not. But I mean, let's, let's just look at it honestly. I, I don't mm -hmm. think people realize this. For Rocket Raccoon in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 to even be a character, to even exist, it took four complete VFX shops working together. Thanos in Infinity War. People mm -hmm. don't understand this. Digital Domain and what a two gigantic companies working completely across the world, along with technology that was made by Disney, that's the only way that those characters were able to become to be, be living, breathing characters, right? It, it, arguably, you could say Infinity War is literally the hero's journey of Thanos. He's the lead mm -hmm. character, if you right. want to look at it that way. He gets more individual screen time than the rest of the characters. All it would take is Didi or Weta to say, guess what? We're not doing it this time, man. We did it three times before, pencils down, until you come to the table and say, we're going to get change orders. We're going to get capital. We're going to get right. skin in the game. We're going to get points. We're going to get top line credit. Um, we're going to get ownership over a small percentage of this. Honestly, there's only a handful of places that can do it. And all of those places are also working on films where they're the only people that can do it, right? Right. No one ever wanted to hear this, but I used to say it all the time. And not just me, lots of people. Like if people put pencils down and said, we're not going to make Hulk until we get healthcare, we get considered um, as part of the rest of the film industry, it would be ugly. They would try to undercut. The studios would definitely try to find another company to work with them, and they'd say they'd never work with you again. But you know what? There's other movies. There, there are companies that need what you can do. I've never understood. I've, I've been so shocked at how mm -hmm. little leverage they've even attempted from, from inside and outside eyes to apply. And again, I, I urge people, anybody in the industry, anybody from the outside, to, to look up this book, Drawing the Line by Tom Cito. He really talks about the animation strike of 1941 when... Disney was really the only place in town at scale that was making features that was doing that much work and the animators got together and they strike. They, they were able to, to essentially get representation, a seat at the table, access to healthcare, um, someone else to fight for them alongside them, the ability to arbitrate. But the only way they did it was to walk out. And it was ugly. It was brutal. There were people who ever ended up never coming back to the industry. There were people who were blacklisted that were um, earmarked for directing jobs, for for leadership jobs, that, that there was bad blood. But mm -hmm. the industry did do it. And honestly, if you look at every other group, they had to fight. It, you know, one of the best examples now is it happens probably three to four times a year. A small reality TV show gets put together as a pilot. It goes to series. It takes off. It has really good ratings. And you find out that it was not done with a union crew. And the team comes together. They they sit down for a week to three weeks. They work with the union. And almost immediately, the show is unionized and people get access to healthcare. They get hours put towards their union. I'm not saying that the union is like stopgap everything it's always going to fix everyone's problems but in an industry where everyone except for one which is probably one of the largest in terms of manpower parts of the industry isn't represented it's it's the only way to do it it's one of the only ways i can see that and it's not necessarily global but if one side and i think in london there's about 20 to 30 percent of the workforce is finally unionized um it was the first step towards it i think dominoes start to fall if in mass people in Vancouver or people in London or people in India or people in LA decide to do it, mm -hmm. there's more than enough money going around, but nobody's asking for it. Nobody's fighting mm -hmm. for it. They're just taking what they can get and hoping that they don't get crushed. Right. So it kind of, as you're talking about this, I get this visual in my mind where there's a scene in World War Z, I think Brad Pitt's in this helicopter and it's, it's circling around. I think they're in Israel. Um, and there's a horde of zombies mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to get into it, yeah. right? And they build this tower and it's just ridiculous. And that's how I see it. It's like everybody in the VFX industry, at least the people that are in charge, are like, it doesn't matter. We're gonna we're gonna get slaughtered. We're we're gonna race towards this horrible ending, and it doesn't matter. We're volunteers mm -hmm. here, and then they play the victim. It's it's really um it, it irritates me in a way oh, yeah. that in one sentence out of your mouth, you're saying we're irreplaceable. 
and then to say and act as if you're replaceable. Are you yeah. a, a gear in the machine? Are you an artist? Do you, do you bring something special, unique and different to what it is that you do? And then you have a lot of leverage. I remember, and again, I could be wrong here, Rhythm and Hughes had this incredible reputation for doing incredible animated uh, animals. Yep, they still do. And so, yep. right, and so they got yep. into that's Lion the one Pie. Thing that's kept them alive. Yep. Right, and they're known. They're like the leaders. If you want a really good-looking photoreal animal that behaves in a way that you can't tell the difference between fake and real, you call those guys. So they could easily come to the table where there's the next Jungle Book, whatever the film is, where it really requires an animal or Thanos or whatever. To say, you guys, look, we're not going to accept this. You guys can find somebody else and just move on. Yeah. Move on yeah, until you, know you get I, the deal that you want. Personally for me, I don't know about you, but personally for me, I would much rather choose a hill to, to take a stand and die on the hill of my choice than mm -hmm. just slowly, slowly die of attrition. Just slowly 100%. die uh, uh, and spending a decade to 20 years feeling the slow pressure pushing me out. And... and the, the problem is there, there's essentially three groups of employees or, or, or people doing this work, right? So you have the the wide base of really young artists that are just stoked. We've all been there just to get your name on something, to tell your buddies you worked on Marvel, to be able to go to the film and see a cast and crew screen and do it. Like you'll do anything, right? You'll work 120 hours. You won't sleep. You'll live in, a, in an apartment with four people. Like you, you, you'll do it. And that's fine. And I don't think people should stop. Um and it's never going to change. You're never going to be able to convince younger artists not to do that. But you have that large group, right? They don't give a shit about insurance. They don't care about what's going to happen when their wife gets pregnant. That's not even in their mindset, right? So you have that really large group that's never going to change. You have the middle group of people who have kind of maybe become a scene supervisor. Or they've moved up two or three two, two or three rungs. But that, that's probably half the size or maybe a third of the size of the young artists, right? And they're looking and they're like, wow, I either need to become a supervisor to get out of this kind of just grind, or I need to start thinking of another industry that can use my skill set because I'm about to have a kid. I can't work these hours. I don't want to work these hours. I'm drinking too much. I'm looking for other ways to get through it. I can't stay awake. Um, and they're the ones who I feel like are, are the people that could take a stand and band together because they're senior level, right? They're the people who are able to make sure things get done. They're not just the grinders. Um, but there's a, there's an out that's just good enough. I could go teach. I could go work in animation. I could work at a video game company. So there's an out that allows them to kind of work, but not necessarily work in the thing they loved. But the love for their work isn't as important as like work-life balance. And I saw a lot of that happening. The people that get left are the people who are like, man, this is what I do, or they're single, or they love films, and they've moved up to become supervisors. And the other little dirty secret that's happened in the industry is that a lot of those supervisors, the the VFX soups, right? The one guy that works on the show for ILM that runs everything, or the three people that do, or the team of five that work underneath him as scene supervisors, those mm -hmm. supervisors got cherry-picked out to go client-side. A lot of those people left working at the studios because it's a grind and someone like Warner Brothers or someone like Michael Bay, who has a production company, they, they get cherry picked out by these outside companies that represent the client, right? So now you're not on the side of the artist. You're not on the side of the creators. You're on the other side where it's like, hey, I'm actually hiring the people that I used to work with. And what ends up happening is, and Phil Tippett, um, probably one of the, if not the most legendary VFX supervisor in the history of visual effects. He, created Go Motion. He's the guy who animated the AT-ATs in, um, in Empire Strikes Back. His history is insane. He has a really great um, a great story. And there's a couple of great quotes where he talks about, you know, like when they were working on Star Wars and they were just trying to get shots done, the room would be full of a bunch of artists that actually worked on the shots, maybe the editor and George, the director, right? Mm -hmm. They never thought about what was wrong with the shot. Like when they put the shot up and it was the first pass, it was like, this is as good as we can do. Everybody sat around thinking as a team, what can we do to make it better? How can I make this better with the time I have left, right? That was when everything was analog. That's when everything was hand done. That was when there were few people who knew exactly how to do it or they didn't know and they were making it up as they went, right? No one was an expert. Fast forward 25, 30 years later, Phil Tippett's in a room as a VFX supervisor running a team full of like visual effects people. And now he's actually not the supervisor that's in charge. There's a VFX supervisor for the show that's, basically owned by the production company that's basically paid by the team of people putting it together, the studio. And he comes in and he has a little red laser and he says, that's wrong. That's wrong. Why does that look like that? And then ask the director, is that how you wanted it to look? 
And a lot of times on these films, nobody knows what anything's supposed to look like. It's being made up as you go. But because it's digital, anything can be changed, everything's possible, and everything's subjective. And now because I'm owned by the studio or I'm paid by the studio, it's a competition. It's a competition to say, like, look what I could see that was broken. Look what I could see that was wrong. So there's infinite problems. There's infinite amount of fixes. And basically, you just run out of time. But it's nonstop. A shot's never done. And there's 1,500 shots to get done. So all you do is you add more people. You do it for whatever you can get it done for. You can't get change orders. So essentially, it's really interesting. Phil Tippett said that he really got tired of the industry when he went from being like a a trusted partner and an artist, and he basically got turned into a person that was moving furniture around the room every day. And he was basically just told, take this, move it here. If that doesn't look good, make it bigger. Can you buff the floors a little bit? Wait, no, it wasn't supposed to be shiny. Can you dull them down? Um, and that's when a lot of these guys kind of just phased out. Um, so you have these three groups of, of people and the, the kind of timeline, and none of them kind of agree on what they want. None of them can be unionized. None of them, there's so much apathy or just honestly, it's not even apathy. There's just so much just exhaustion. Yeah, I hear you. It's when the conditions are set up that there are few buyers and and there are many sellers, and the mm -hmm. sellers almost like rush in to volunteer to do things that are at or below cost. It seems like there's no way out of this system, but I think there are, and people just need to be more creative. I think the thing that you were talking about is this whole scarcity and abundance mindset. If we, if we feel like we're never good enough, or there's not another opportunity, if we say no one time then we're going to see this perpetuate forever. For as long as many people will jump into the ship as people are getting out, the industry will continue on as it is. Now, I don't believe there's going to be a benevolent studio one day that's going to say, hey, this seems wrong. Let's just start mm -hmm. unionizing our project because there's not enough pressure from the public. Because I, I, I imagine that there are people listening to this right now thinking, wow, people in the VFX industry get to work on amazing projects. They get to brag about the projects they work on. Some of them actually get their name on the screen and they're getting paid six figures and above. I'm here digging a ditch. Well, you got to be complaining about this is not some kind of travesty, right? Right. But if we look at it as a whole, there is some lopsided things that can be changed. Now, I want to submit two thoughts for you to think about and maybe pontificate on. One is, I saw Netflix come out of nothing. Really, they were just looking at a pain point that users were having with driving to Blockbuster to rent a video that may or may not be in stock, dealing with a pretty high fee to, to watch that video. And if they were late, get dinged a pretty heavy price. And they thought, let's cut all that out. Let's just solve that one problem. And they, they ship them to your house and they figure out a very simple solution to a problem. But Netflix didn't stop there. They started thinking about, well, maybe getting physical media was an old idea. So let's let's get it online. Let's stream that. And once they have a streaming portal and it seemed to be profitable and people migrated towards it because the internet is fast enough and people have good enough displays at home, that what should we do? We should get into the content business because that'll make it so that somebody, some competitors are able to step in and take our customers away. Now they become one of the biggest buyers of content out there from from very low, humble beginnings from being a commodity business that supplanted a very old industry. So there's that model. So just think about like, if you're the person who's able to make so many incredible things, hey, there's Chris, a, that's a double-edged sword. Me, lost the reason your, uh, why Phil Tippett and, the, and people like him are having issues is because a kid with the latest software package with a, a couple of video tutorials can actually make some pretty good looking work where before, the barriers to entry were computers and software and know-how, and it was very complicated to do hours of render um, render farms and all that kind of stuff just to get a shot out. And now I'm blown away by what my students can do that was considered cutting edge six years ago. So there's that problem, right? There's another model here that I was thinking about, which is this. You were talking about full sale and DD. Here's, what, here's another problem that I see. Students pay a lot of money to go to school to learn how to do this for an industry that may or may not be kind to them when they get out. In some cases, they're paying $20,000 or more a semester to go to school. Why not have DD or Rhythm Hughes or Weta open up their own school, charge very little tuition, train these people and tend to work in their, into, in their company so that it benefits the student. And when they're done, they can have a real job and Weta or DD or whoever, benefit from having a good labor force that they can actually start to make money on. That looks to me like another win-win situation. Of course, the elephant in the room is to stop taking on work that is not favorable in terms of you even pulling out a profit. 
but there are more creative models here. We have platforms and channels to distribute your own content. You can broker your own deals in terms of sponsors, or you, you don't even need that much financing because the, the tools are so good now that anybody, like I look at guys like Ash Thorpe and there are others, uh, I forget his name right now, but that are making their own little films. They don't need anybody anymore. You can do it on your own with a small team of two, three, 10, 12 people and make an incredible film and just get distribution or not, or sell it to Netflix. So I think there's markets that are totally underserved, um, mm -hmm. voices that aren't being heard. Um, and I think you can find a way to create a captive audience. And if you combine that with amazing visual effects that are cost effective, that um, are taking advantage of all the kind of newest forms of working, um, you are honest about what the needs are of the show. Maybe it doesn't have to look 100%, but the difference, the the fiscal difference between 75% and 100% um, is way different than what the audience's perception of the difference between 75 and 100% is, if that makes any right. sense. Um, yes, I think does. we get so so caught up in the, um, I don't know the right way to say this without sounding awful. Um, I'll, I'll say it because visual effects is such a male-dominated part of the industry. Um, the only way for me to say it is I feel like visual effects turns into a dick-swinging contest. Um, mm -hmm. And hopefully that's okay to say on your show. But um, so much of it turns into like, I know how to do it the right way. I can make it better. Oh, that doesn't look as good as what I know I can do. I think we lose sight of the audience quite often and the difference between really good and perfect can make the difference between a lot of money. Um, right. Not saying that you do bad work, but just being respectful of what what both your company and the audience needs. Um, mm -hmm. I think if you take all of those things, you can honestly create a, a large fandom. You can be very fast. You can be very um, cost effective. Um, and you can, you can kind of create new opportunities. I, I don't think is that going to solve the lack of a union or the the brain drain in Los Angeles or the um, gypsy lifestyle that happens anywhere. I'm right. not a, I'm a hundred percent, not a, all the work needs to happen in California or the United States person. I'm a hundred percent against though, the idea that you spend three years working on a film and then your studio shuts down or the office gets shut down and you get offered to offered in air quotes to move to a completely different part of the world or sorry, we'll see you later. Um, that's the part why I think uh, uh, some type of global unification effort across the country and then across um, the the entire globe would be really helpful and be really useful. Right. I think what you're talking about is this uh, self-obsessed culture of perfection that can drain pretty much any chance of profitability out of a, a, an assignment. And that's, that goes for if you're working on a music video commercial or a feature length film. And some, sometimes we got to step away from that a little bit and say, what's more important to the narrative and getting this project done and us all making money and going home and spend time with our family or just to go go for a run or something to keep ourselves healthy and sane. Well, yeah. hey man, this was super freaking awesome. And that was the most deepest dense conversation I've ever had with anybody on our podcast. <laughs> I think people are going to be like having to hit pause on this one and, and kind of stop process and listen to it again a couple of times. You're a man with many talents and a little known thing. And I didn't realize this until we talked on, on your podcast is uh, that the idea behind Talking Dead came from you. Can you share a little bit? That's like a little fun factoid here. <laughs> I got to get yeah, that out. Um, yeah. No, thanks. Thanks. Um, yeah. No, when I first moved to... Um when I first moved to Los Angeles, I was actually doing motion graphics for a company that was doing podcasts. And it was all about like VC funded entrepreneur um, startup kind of lifestyle. Um, but at the same time, we were getting successful with a couple of shows. Our owner asked us for more ideas and like, what if we do podcasts, like video podcasts, where we stream the last five minutes during the last five minutes of a TV show. And then as soon as the show's done, like imagine your your the viewpoint of the, the TV, you see the people that are hosts on a couch, you see the reaction to the cliffhanger. And as soon as the show goes off the air, we go live with our group of people to talk about it. And the show I wanted to do it with was Walking Dead before it ever started. Our owner had no idea what it was, thought zombies were stupid, but he let me do it on a Sunday um, on our own time. We put a cast together and we did an episode for like a post-show episode for every single episode of the first season. And we brought in guests. Like we actually brought in the dude who played Shane, who's gone on to play the Punisher mm -hmm. in a ton of movies. He was on our, he was on our couch. Um, we almost had Galen Hurd, who's like, like producer of Terminator 2, I think was formerly married to James Cameron. We were going to have her on the first episode of the second season. Um, and our final episode, we had someone um, who kind of took the idea of just this podcast and brought it to the people making Walking Dead. And, um, Talk, it turned into Talking Dead. Um, What's and, this person's actually, name? Uh, I'm not going to name names because I don't want to create controversy. <laughs> but it was somebody. <laughs> it was somebody. Somebody who who would be able to get the information to someone who knew the host 
who then was able to take it to a production company. Um, and and I was <laughs> I was very young at my time in Los Angeles, but somehow it got back to me that this show was going to happen. And somehow I was offered a position for the first two seasons to do um, on-air live show graphics at double my rate. Um, so I didn't say no to it. Um, and I didn't really push back on saying like, oh my God, you guys, uh, your idea is really similar to my idea. Um, but because I was actually cool about it, um, mm. I have a lot of really good relationships with a lot of really cool people because of it. Um, and it was really cool to see a little, a little, just like we were talking about, like with Netflix or what we're talking about with doing, you know, small animations to build up into a product. It was really cool to see a little idea we dreamed up turn into something that was what, from what I was told, honestly, one of the most profitable shows, um, during the first two seasons of walking dead, cause it doesn't take much money to make a little show with a person talking to camera for the biggest show on television. So yeah, right. it was pretty cool. It was a fun experience. Fantastic idea. And when you told me this, I pretty much almost like fell out of my chair. I was thinking, oh my God, if that was your idea. Okay. Yeah, I know. Uh, that's, I know. Uh, that's another topic for another time. Uh, thank you very much for jumping on uh, during your lunch hour and spending the, the, the hour with me and multiple attempts at doing this thing. Super appreciative. <laughs> and I'd love to continue this conversation, especially with anybody that's listening to this. If you have thoughts or opinions on this and you want to let Ryan or myself have a piece of your mind, let us have it because we want to talk about this. And what yeah. I'm mostly proud of doing is trying to have these uncomfortable conversations that nobody wants to have in public, but I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. And once again, thank you very much, Ryan, for being on the show. Man, thanks for having me. It was a great talk. Thanks for listening to The Future. We'd love to hear what you think. You can do so on social media, head to the website, or like Chris said, leave us a review on iTunes. My name is Ryan Summers, and you're listening to The Future. Future is hosted by me, Chris Doe. Our show is edited by Samuel Burns with an assist from Stuart Schuster. Big thanks to Adam Sanborn for composing our theme song. To subscribe to the Future Podcast, check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. While you're there, do us a solid and leave us a review. Your comments will help guide future programming, and hey, it'll help us with our rankings. Can't get enough content? You're in luck. We have over 500 episodes on our YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash thefutureishere. Make sure you don't miss out on upcoming events, workshops, live broadcasts, and webinars by signing up for our newsletter. Go to our site, future.com, and click on the email sign-up button. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Future Is Here. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.